Let's begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, you show us that you love us and you keep reaching out to us with your saving gospel. For this we praise and thank you and teach us to recognize Jesus in all of these things and in your love for each one of us. And in his name we pray, amen. So we ended last time with uh, this verse. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. I had considered buying some incense and burning it for you, but I thought you might not forgive me for that for a while because it's kind of stinky. Um, and, uh, but did I tell you the story of my bishop last time? Um, when I was a vicar, that is a practice preacher, this is back in 1997, my uh, uh, supervising pastor was going to preach about incense, and he didn't know anything about incense, and he thought he would buy some at the corner smoke shop, uh, which is fine, they had it for various reasons, and he bought a stick of incense and the little holder that it goes in, and he lit it, and nobody told him, you have to blow it out, or else it'll just burn. And, and, and if, you, if, you, if you blow it out, it acts like a, like a smoldering wick or cigarette. It kind of burns slowly and fills the room gently with whatever odor your incense stick is in. But when it's just burning on fire, it takes just a minute to burn all the way through the whole stick or so, and the smoke is everywhere and uh, our church was just so filled with smoke over this um, which was pretty upsetting and pretty funny to a lot of people at the same time so um, I thought I thought I would tell you the story instead of just demonstrating the fault myself yeah so but remember in Hosea the prophet goes back and forth between law and gospel abruptly. And here we have an example of this with our first verse today. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. So the the desert is depicted by God here as the honeymoon. The, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That, that's what we want to get back to, the Lord says. Why was that the honeymoon for God and his people? Want to take a stab at it, Beth? Yeah, he, he supplied everything. And I liked your addition of they were isolated together. This is our alone time together. Um, and they didn't, uh, the Israelites themselves didn't handle it all that well all the time. There were hiccups and, uh, and, uh, uh, and mistakes and things along the way. Um, but it was the beginning of his intimate relationship with his people. Um, before we continue with that so that we can because we can come back to that, but how important is it for husbands and wives to get away alone together? How often should that be? 
How, and I'm, I'm kind of asking for me to reflect in my own life how bad a husband was I. Um, but how often should we get alone, get away alone together? Ideally, once a week. Are, are you just talking about a date somewhere? Okay, okay. What I'm talking about getting alone, you know, for, for, for days and nights on end. One, one good vacation a year. Um, what about newlyweds? In, in a sense, that's their whole life uh, to begin with. Um, uh, not always, if one of them already has kids. Um, but they should spend lots of time together. In my marriage, uh, Kath and I tried to watch a little bit of TV uh, every night and then talk for a while. You know, um, we had very different bedtimes. Um, so we would do that and I would kind of fall asleep watching TV and we would talk for a while then I would go off to bed and three hours later she'd come to bed eventually, you know, because we just had very different schedules. Um, and, uh, and then I was up much earlier in the morning, which still is kind of my routine, which I'm grateful for because my sons have a hard time waking up and if they have to get up, I'm the one who has to do the, the getting up and so forth. But um, but yeah, that a little bit of every day. And I also like there to be some of that the first time you see each other in the afternoon or early evening when you first get home. There's some decompression that needs to happen right away before other things can happen. You know, so as soon as you come home, honey, let's vent, you know, a little bit about you know, whatever, what happened today? Just unload all of that. And then, and then, I'm not saying we should unload our frustrations, but we should be able to talk about right away what happened that day and get it out. Our, our prophet here, or the Lord through the prophet says, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Does anybody remember what the valley of Achor was and what happened there? And it's not the most common story. It's not exactly the parable of the, you know, the rich fool. It's not, we don't read it all the time. But the Valley of Achor involved a man named Achan. And this is in the days of the conquest. It was over on, can I say, this side of the Jordan in, in Canaan. And under Joshua, not under Moses. And when the Israelites got there uh, to Jericho, they took over Jericho. And one man uh, plundered the city. You know, he got a couple of goodies for himself. He got some clothes and some stuff and a, a wedge of precious metal um, that was his. And Joshua had to go through all the tribes to figure out who did something wrong. And they singled out this guy and finally found him. He and his family were stoned to death. And uh, they, uh, Joshua buried the goodies with him. Um, it all, you know, none, we can't hang on to any of this stuff. And they set up a heap of stones there, and it was called the Valley of Achor, which meant the Valley of Trouble. So uh, that's where this was. But down on the Jordan River, not all that far from Jerusalem, just a couple of miles away, down the hill in the Valley of the Moon uh, down there, which is what uh, uh, Jericho is, um, and... Uh, here the Lord says, I will make it a door of hope. Um, and she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. 
What did Israel sing when they came up out of, out of Egypt? Yeah, there were Thanksgiving, and there were two specific songs. Miriam's song, which is one verse long, and it's the one everybody remembers. And the verse Moses sang, which is 18 verses long, which, and they're very similar in content. Um, I will sing to the Lord, for he has highly exalted the horse and its rider, he has hurled into the sea. That's the song of Moses. And then it goes along in, in those lines. Um, you unleashed your burning anger, it consumed them like stubble. The, the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea and so on. And, uh, and, he, and he concludes, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And then Miriam also gathers, um, uh, let me just read that that part here. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. So it's um, exactly the same as the first line of the Song of Moses. Um, but uh, she sings it too. So Moses sings this or composes it. Then Miriam takes it up with music and dancing and everything else. And uh, the men and the women are singing this wonderful song of victory as they come up out of, out of Egypt and out of the, out of the Red Sea. Um, and this is what the, prophet, or what, what rather the Lord uses to remember that good time when we were at our honeymoon and we had dancing and singing and out there in the wilderness and we bound ourselves to one another out there. And God says, that's what I want again with my people. Uh, so verse 16, or did I, did I cover all of our... Well, I, no, I got a couple questions here. How does God do that today with sinners? How does he get back to their roots? He allows consequences, and, and therefore trouble comes into people's lives. And what does that do for us? Yeah, we turn. What is that turning called? Repentance. Yeah, through repentance. Yeah, he allows those things to happen to us. Uh, I think yesterday in the sermon I said war, weather, famine, disease. And uh, he lets those things, or whatever it is, and he lets them happen. We turn back to him um, once again. What does that tell us about God's love for mankind? Yeah, yeah, he wants to draw us close into him. Uh-huh. Um, his, well, we could, I could just have you finish the verse, right? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Is there anyone so sinful that God will not forgive them and call them back again? No, he calls us back and calls us back and calls us back. Um, uh, our, the frequency of our sin, the horror of our sin, the greatness of our sin, the depth of our sin, God wants to forgive. He wants, he, wants to turn, he wants us to turn away from it, but he wants us to, to, wants to rather to uh, call us to him. 16 and 17. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Um, 
I just want to say, my husband in, 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 in Hebrew here is Ishi, uh, uh, my man, my husband. My master, the Hebrew or Phoenician word for master is Baal. Baal. So I, you will no longer call me Baali, my Baal. God says, I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. So sure, that was a word that got used for, for master. Uh, there's a time in, I, I'm forgetting if it's Sarah or Leah. I think it's Sarah calls Abraham my Baal at some point, my husband, my master. Um, but they used Baal all over the place as a word in their, in their regular uh, language. These are just some of them. If you just want to look at the screen for a second. So you have Baal Barith, the master of the covenant, Baal Zephon, Bamot Baal, the entrance to Baal, uh, uh, Baal of Peor, kind of a famous one from the, from the days of the book of Numbers when um, uh, 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 Balaam the Syrian wanted them to turn away to false gods um, at the Baal of Peor. Baal Meon, Baal Gad, there's the name of one of the tribes. Yikes. Uh, Kiriath Baal is the other name of Kiriath Giarim. Um, Baal Hermon, Mount Hermon is a big mountain north of Galilee. Baal Tamar, and there are others. The Israelites, the northern tribes, tended to use the word Baal all over the place. And sometimes, yes, for the true God. They would use that he is our Baal, um, and which is shocking to us. Why would you use, why would you interchange those words? But it was one of their usual words for the Almighty um, in some way, and they would say Baal. So um, I have this question at the bottom of the first sheet of your, of your notes. Um, note the trouble encountered by missionaries when translating their preaching and the scriptures into a native language. How do you translate the word for God? I've got three options here. Do you use a local word for the supreme God? Do you use uh, to the people a meaningless Hebrew or Greek word? Do you use what would to the people be a meaningless English word? foreign to their language. What do you use um, for them, for, for, for the true God? Do you walk into an African village and say, I want to tell you about Yahweh? You know, what, what are they going to say to you? But, 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 but for their prayer life, for your Bible translation, what word do you use? Oh, give thanks to blank. His mercy endures forever. What do we say? This is, this is the translator's paradox. This is um, what our missionaries, one of, the, one of the terrible things our missionaries go through because it's a mis it can be, what can work in one village can be a terrible mistake in another village. And they kind of have to learn by making the mistakes. That's the problem. Can I just give you a simple one? Who knows what Melakalikimaka means? Mele is our word Mary. 
just there's a problem in some Eastern languages and in the Polynesian Hawaiian dialect of using R's and L's. So Mele is just Mary. Kalikimaka, Christmas. Mele Kalikimaka is just an attempt to say Merry Christmas in Polynesian or Hawaiian. That's all it is. So, I mean, Melikalikimaka is the word, you know, yeah, it's, it, but it's, it, it's Merry Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it, that was using the English word with the Hawaiians and the Polynesians. Let's use Christ. Um, and Kalika is, you know, became rather than something else like Moa or something, which would have been a mistake. But our missionaries in Africa have found that kind of village to village in Central Africa, South Africa, they had to figure it out by talking to the tribal leaders. How important is this word, this divinity? And so the translations of the Bible into the African dialects, even though it's been going on now for almost 100 years, since 1947, 1949, it continues today because more dialects means you got to do it again and do it again and do it again. And uh, you know how long it takes to translate the whole Bible? <laughs> you know, if you know one of the two languages, you know, if you know either, uh, if you know the, the original language, which almost nobody knows you know, classic biblical Hebrew as a spoken language anymore. But to, if you know the receptor language, if, you, if you're simply translating the Bible into your own English, it takes a couple years to do the Bible. You know, maybe a year to do the New Testament and about three more to do the Old Testament. That's about what it takes. But if you're not a speaker of either language, you know, if you're, if you're able to preach in... I'll say uh, Swahili, but you don't think in Swahili, it's going to take you longer to make a trend. And you have to have a team, really. Um, they, the, the United Bible Study, the, the United Bible Society has an amazing process for translation of the scriptures um, and translations. And you, you, you make a try with John 3.16 and then you make an attempt with all of John. Why John? Well, yes, it's the gospel. It's also got some of the simplest language in the whole Bible. You don't have a lot of crazy words in John. It's light and life and, you know, and, and, and things like that. Because the theology is deep. But the language is simple. So a very, very elegant uh, uh, way of writing. But it's... Uh, often the first thing that gets translated for that reason, because it's deep theology, but simple language to understand. Um, difficult uh, for some other books of the Bible. Ezekiel, quite often dead last. You know, not the easiest book to, to get or to render. Um, and uh, Jeremiah, uh, not that easy, and, and, and others as well. Um, the list of birds in Leviticus 10, uh, you know, am I going to try to be as accurate as I can or am I going to be scopophilic like the NIV? Um, have I used that word with you before? 
that I, I'm convinced that the translators of the NIV were scopophiles. I made up that word. It means I'm obsessed with owls. Because all of the unclean birds in the NIV is owl this and owl that. And they aren't all owls. Some of them are water birds and things. But there's an awful lot of unclean owls in the NIV and, and the Leviticus 11. that I don't think that all of them are owls. But, uh, but fortunately, we don't have to worry about unclean birds today. So is it that big of a deal for us? Not so much. You know, yeah. Okay, sorry about my tirade about the owls. Okay, we're in Hosea 2.18. Um, I'm just going to read our, our verse. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. So based on the last phrase, what's the point of the whole verse? Peace, safety. How would beasts of the field, birds of the air, creatures that move along the ground, how would they affect safety? Okay, eat us, sting us, attack us. Um, birds of the air and my corn? They're not going to steal my crop either, right? And the creatures that move along the ground? What else do creepy crawlies do to my crops. Yeah, they eat them. The worms get in there and eat them and all, and all of that too. Yeah, the, the, the birds primarily are, destroy the crops. The, 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 the animals um, may afflict them or eat them also or attack us. And the crawling animals, um, uh, you know, bring disease and so forth. Um, so, uh, and then we move into bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land. So all may lie down in safety. So all of the threat is removed. Isaiah 11. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling um, will end uh, uh, together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The Young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Um, so the, the critters are there, but they are peaceful. And war is removed, and, and trouble is removed, and these other things. Um, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion, I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. So betroth occurs three times, but there are four th uh, five things, right? That God is going to bring to this betrothal, to this marriage. The five things are righteousness, justice, love, compassion, and faithfulness. So can you uh, give me another way of saying righteousness? What is it that God is giving us if he gives us righteousness? Cleanness, Cleanness holiness, salvation. salvation, a lack of sin in our lives. What about justice? Something that our catechism kids struggle with when we talk about heaven is the lack of temptation and that they will no longer be even tempted to sin in heaven. And of course, what's the trouble? Well, these are teenagers just entering puberty, you know, in catechism class. 
and they have trouble imagining a world with no temptation at all um, because their, their lives are basically nothing but temptation uh, at, at that moment. And it's, you know, what will be left of my life if there's no temptation? Um, they can't imagine, not that they're embracing temptation, but that's all they know at this moment in their life. They're bombarded with it from, from everywhere, from their entertainment, probably from their parents, from their peers, certainly, you know, from everywhere. There's nothing but uh, this blast of sin and, and temptation. And to imagine a place where it's all just gone, it's, it's not there anymore. And this, in, in, in context, this is a one-sided, it's not a bilateral commitment. This is God saying it. Man is not repeating this to God. God is saying righteousness, justice, the central one, love, compassion, which is sort of love on legs. You know, I'm going to do something about my love. And faithfulness, it's going to endure um, this is God telling us what a one-sided covenant is all about. He will love and love and love and love. Um, it would be a wonderful passage, a pair of verses to weave into our wedding ceremonies. Um, not just as an occasional sermon text, but as part of the ceremony itself. More than an engagement... Um, it can be, depending on context, less than a marriage. But in this context, it seems to be marriage. I will wed you. I will marry you. I will betroth you to me, he says. Oh, and we have a different verse, uh, versification in here. Uh, no, betroth is... Um, uh, so um, it's it's a it must be rasat as the yeah so so uh, that's that's an unusual old oh that could be why they did that um, uh, if you have an unusual old-fashioned Hebrew word we're often told to use an old-fashioned English word. Otherwise, you lose some of the flavor of the Old Testament variety. Um, uh, so occasionally, you do come up with a word like betrothed, um, where it was an older Hebrew word that, that has a lot of, you know, that has synonyms. So that's, I'm just going back to my rubrics for when we were translating the Wartburg Project. But if you have an unusual word, try to use an, use an unusual word that people will still recognize. You know, do you always have to say horse? Or can you say mare, stallion, dapple? You know, depending on what the word is in, 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 in context, that kind of thing. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. Lamentations 3. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.